I really want Beth to make it. She's so sympathetic. She has these odds stacked against her. She's had tension that she's endured. We don't really know the full story of that. And we worry about her. And we can really tap into those moments, or at least I really can tap into those moments as a reader when I was embarrassed or worried or felt a lot of pressure or had a lot of anxiety. I can see that all through what Beth is facing and what she's challenged within these scenes. I'm rooting for Beth as she prepares to submit her essay for consideration. I can see that she wants to prove herself and there's a sense of pride. There's this sense of, I may be insecure, but at the same time, reminding yourself that you have value and you have worth and you have something to do and show and can stand up for yourself. And that's where Beth is at the end of this chapter. Hey there, welcome to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. I'm Abigail Perry, the host of Lit Match and a certified developmental editor who also worked as an editorial intern at a literary agency. I'm always on the hunt for noteworthy literary agents, authors, and stories that make big impacts in the world. Thank you so much for joining me for today's special bonus episode, which I'm sharing as a follow-up episode to my interview with Senior Vice President of Folio Literary Management, John Kuzik. In today's episode, I'm going to take a close look at the first chapter from one of John's awesome clients, Abdi Nazemian, and his book, The Chandler Legacies. Abdi Nazemian is the author of Like a Love Story, a Stonewall Honor book, and The Authentics. His novel for authors, The Walk-In Closet, won the Lambda Literary Award for LGBT debut fiction. His screenwriting credits include the films The Artist's Wife, The Quiet, and Mendez Blood Brothers, and the television series Ordinary Joe, The Village, and Almost Family. He has been an executive producer on numerous films, including Call Me By Your Name, Little Woods, and The House of Tomorrow. He lives in Los Angeles with his husband, their two children, and their dog, Disco. The Chandler Legacies is a YA novel about five students with disparate identities accepted into the circle, a coveted writing group at their elite Connecticut boarding school. When their professor instructs them to write their truths, each must face their insecurities, as well as the school's toxic legacy of bullying, homophobia, racism, and sexual assault. To give you a taste of where the story starts, I'm going to read the first page of the first chapter of The Chandler Legacies. And following this, I'm going to break down what I think makes the first chapter hook a reader by analyzing it through structure and through the seven questions that literary agent and author Polly Munet suggests in her writing craft book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And just to emphasize, I am reading the first page of the first chapter because that's what I'm going to analyze today. There is a prologue, a very short and beautifully written prologue that also kickstarts the story but I'm going to start with the first chapter. The first page of the first chapter follows the viewpoint of Beth Kramer. So it's titled Beth Kramer and here we go. If you take the interstate from New York into Connecticut, you might notice the pollution that has started to infest our highways. Soda bottles, packs of cigarettes, gum wrappers. You might notice the red of the trees in the fall, the green of them in the spring. If you're very observant, you will probably notice the hidden police cars covertly stationed near the off-ramps waiting for speeding luxury cars that can teach a lesson to Connecticut being the capital of traffic violations. Mom, there's the exit, Beth Kramer tells her mom, Elizabeth pointing to an unmarked off-ramp. Beth and her mom share a name, and they're both redheads with freckles, but they share very little else. It's so confusing, her mom says. Can't they just put up a big old sign like normal people? No, because this isn't a place for normal people. Here's the thing. 
1958, where the interstate was first built, the headmaster of Chandler Academy and the headmistress of Plum School, they were still separate institutions then, petitioned the state for their very own interstate exit, Exit 75. The only catch was that they wanted it to be a hidden exit with no signage. Beth doesn't say any of this to her mom, who hates everything Chandler represents and would bristle at the whole concept of an hidden interstate exit. Her mom would understand, like Beth does, that the whole point of Exit 75 is avoiding townies. Beth is one of those townies. And yet here she is, arriving for her sophomore year, a second chance at convincing them and convincing herself that she belongs here. Okay, now that you've got a taste of Epi's story, let's get into the analysis of the first chapter on its structure and its ability to hook readers. Remember, we're just looking at the first chapter. We're not looking at the prologue. As a personal side note, and I've talked about this in my previous episode, I don't see scenes as the same thing as chapters. But in the case of the Chandler legacies, I do think that the first chapter is one scene. So I will be analyzing one scene, one chapter today. Here we go. When I'm analyzing structure, I turn to the five commandments. There are several factors a reader can use to determine the quality of a first chapter and why it hooks a reader. The two tools that most help me as an editor and as a writer are the five commandments from StoryGrid that I use to analyze the structure of the scene and determine if it advances the plot and if it develops the characters. And I also like to use the seven key first chapter questions that author and literary agent Paula Munet shares in her writing craft book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. As we move through this episode, keep in mind that every Every piece of analysis I share is my personal viewpoint. Literature is subjective and the way I see something might differ from how you see it. And that's absolutely okay. I consider these analysis tools as a way to use the Socratic learning method to determine why I, as the reader, think the first chapter in the Chandler Legacy stands out. The first of these tools that I'm going to use for a structure comes from StoryGrid and it's called the Five Commandments. These commandments can be used to determine a scene structure and how a character moves about in a scene in order to achieve a goal or a want. The progression of this movement will eventually build up to an action or revelation called a turning point that will force a character to make an unignorable decision called a crisis question, which causes a crisis decision or dilemma. This combination of the turning point and crisis decision is what I believe instigates the change in the scene, otherwise known as the value shift in the scene. Something valuable to a character has changed from the beginning of the scene to the end of it, and all scenes should have change. How these five commandments develop will determine if a value shift occurs and why there is that change in the scene and how that change also impacts the big picture or the global story. If you're familiar with the five commandments, Fantastic. If not, no worries. I'm going to explain each of the five commandments and then suggest how I think they cause a value shift and that change in the scene as we walk through the example of the first chapter of the Chandler Legacies. We start first and foremost on identifying the story event in the scene. So quickly, a story event is a positive or negative change from one or more characters as a result of a conflict. So a character's desires clash with the force of antagonism of some sort, be it a person or an environmental factor whatever that's going to be. And for the main event in the first chapter, the Chandler Legacies, this is what I identify as the story event. Beth, a third former or otherwise known as a sophomore at Chandler Academy, does her best to move into her dorm without interacting with other students and without allowing her anxiety to consume her in public. When one of the most popular girls in school, Amanda Spencer, otherwise known as Spence, 
tries to talk to her. Now that we know the story event, let's talk about the scene want, because wants are paramount in identifying scene goals and impacting how characters move throughout a scene. When we're thinking about what a character wants in the scene and why they want this, and don't forget that why, that why is really important. We are allowing ourselves to understand the main character's motivations for moving through the scene and how that comes with consequences in some way. A want is going to move you towards a scene goal, and that's the variable that tugs at the character and demands a value change as they move forward in the scene, either going closer to or further away from that goal. It's going to cause a positive or negative value shift. Beth is the main character in the first chapter, and she wants a second chance at proving that she belongs at Chandler. This, in a way, kind of contradicts what Beth is trying to do for a lot of the scene, which is stay invisible. That's why she doesn't want her mom to help her move in. She decided not to be a tour guide, even though she wishes that she had been a tour guide and knows so much about Chandler and the campus, things like that. It's interesting. It's a complex character. Now let's look at the commandments. The five commandments are inciting incident is the first one. Second one is turning point. Third one is crisis decision. A crisis question is what causes a crisis decision, but we're going to call it crisis decision. The fourth one is the climax and the fifth commandment is the resolution. Here's how they work in the Chandler legacies. Inciting incident. This is an unexpected event that gets in the way of a character trying to accomplish their goal. This is the first sign of a conflict in the scene, and it will cause the character to come up with a new scene goal, or it forces the character to adjust their initial scene goal. The inciting incident is either causal, meaning it's caused by a person, or coincidental, meaning it's caused by coincidence. The inciting incident is the first chapter in the Chandler Legacies, and is a causal action that moves the plot on a scene level. It also pushes Beth to where she needs to be in order to be part of the story's big idea. This inciting incident is when Elizabeth, Beth's mom, drives Beth to the boarding school for the year. And moments like when Beth's mom complains about the hidden exit sign emphasize how Elizabeth distastes the elite boarding school and also hints at the privileged culture at Chandler that likely is harmful to various students on campus. During this car ride, Beth internally recognizes that the whole point of keeping the school's exit hidden is because Chandler wants to avoid townies like Beth, establishing Beth's want and goals in the scene, which I think are one, Beth wants to move into her dorm invisibly, and two, Beth wants to prove to everyone else that she's more than just a townie, and that want is going to be what we see grow. It starts to become the goal of the scene, but her initial want is like, get through the day. There's a lot that she wants to do in this year, but right now in this immediate scene, we're just moving in. The second commandment is the turning point. In Story Grid, this is called the progressive complication turning point. I just like to call it the turning point because I do think that there are moments of escalating conflict. So these are called progressive complications that go from the inciting incident leading to the turning point. But the turning point in a scene is different than a regular progressive complication because it forces the character into a crisis question, into a crisis decision. It causes a crisis question. So that means that even if the character ignores the turning point, there will be consequences, either positively or negatively. The turning point is either an action, meaning that something physical happens, or a revelation, the character gets new information that forces the character to make that crisis decision based on their crisis question. They can no longer go after their scene goal in the way that they previously pursued it. I debated between two potential turning points that I saw existing in the first chapter of the Chandler Legacies. The first one is when Spence, Amanda Spencer, says hello to Beth, which throws Beth off course. And the second one is when Spence moves on to talk to Henny, which leaves Beth feeling a little less special and provokes her anxiety. From my perspective, both of these actions are significant factors in Beth's character development and the plot development. 
I believe that both of these moments are absolutely crucial to the first chapter. And there are major moments that draw the reader into what's going on inside of Beth as well as outside of Beth as she moves into Chandler. I could really see arguments for either turning point as the pick. And I do believe that each action pushes Beth into a crisis question. But which crisis causes her to make a crisis decision that is then going to impact the structure of the scene and ultimately the value shift that changes the scene? That's what I kept asking myself when I looked at turning points and I decided to mark the turning point as where Spence addresses Beth, I see this turning point as the action that most directly impacts Beth's movements throughout the first day as it interferes with Beth's goal of remaining invisible. Plus how Beth responds to this turning point will also result in another decision that lends itself for the character to learn more about Beth's backstory and anxieties than necessarily show the direct action in the scene. Commandment number three is that crisis decision. Remember that a crisis decision is dependent on a turning point. Crisis decisions are either best bad choice meaning that there are two equally bad things that will happen or an or in a reconcilable goods decision, which is the inverse of a best bad choice, meaning that two equally good things will happen. Based on the turning point that I chose, which is Spence saying hello to Beth, thrusts Beth into a crisis question of does Beth ignore Spence and hightail it out of there, or does she interact and risk humiliation or potentially a positive interaction? Beth makes her crisis decision, which is actually dominantly reactive, but still a choice made under pressure. And that is Beth freezes and does nothing. And this causes Spence to call out to Beth again until finally Beth answers Spence and admits that she didn't even know Spence knew her name. The fourth commandment is climb and this is the action that shows how your character makes their crisis decision. This action also shows the reader who the character really is. And since actions define character, decisions are paramount in our ability to see who a character really is. The climax in the first scene of the Chandler Legacies is Beth talks to Spence about her summer. This builds a small sense of belonging and kinship in Beth, even though Beth realizes that she knows way more about Spence, despite them not even being friends. Beth and Spence's conversation also ends quickly when Spence sees Henny and turns her attention to him. And this leaves Beth with the sinking feeling that provokes her anxiety, which is going to be the resolution of the scene. The fifth commandment, the resolution, shows how the character's decision works out for them. It's all of the details that result from that character's action and confirms that there has been a value shift in character and plot change in the scene. Resolutions are actually usually a lot longer in explanation, not necessarily, but basically when I'm writing out a resolution, I'm going to write a lot more than a climax since the climax is really just the immediate action based on the decision. The resolution in the first scene of the Chandler Legacies is when Spence turns her attention to Henny, Beth feels deflated and a little more lonely. This manifests in her rising anxiety and desire to tug her hair which forces her into another quick crisis question of does she tug her hair in public or not? And since Beth has vowed not to tug her hair in public, she restrains from doing that and wants to run to her dorm room so that she can tug her hair out, but she trips and she falls. Henny helps her up quickly. And in their quick interaction, Henny mistakes Beth as a new student. And this kind of actually is reassuring to Beth that Henny didn't know her name. So kind of re reinforces her understanding of her place in her world. And then it also starts to further pull us into Beth's internal state of mind where Beth starts to really bring us closely into her POV as she interacts with the other things that she sees as she continues to move in. One of these being Beth's roommate from the previous year, Sarah Brunson. Beth reflects on the tension that she endured from rooming with Sarah in the previous year, specifically related to Beth's chipotillomania. This later moves into Beth finding security as she closes the door and she's alone in her dorm room and she's able to 
pull as many hairs out as she wants. She looks specifically for the rough ones. She tugs them out. She likes to feel the bald spot on her scalp. She talks about Professor Douglas, who's a professor that she admires on campus and also is responsible for recruiting students for this coveted writing group at Chandler Academy. Beth pulls out Professor Douglas's only published work and Beth works in the essay. The final action that we see in the scene is when Beth tucks her essay into her envelope and seals it, thus leading to the big idea of the story. Okay, one last thing with structure. We need to talk about the value shift, right? Because they've talked about how is what confirms that there's been a change, either positively and negatively in the scene, and every scene should be about change. This change also often impacts the big idea that drives the story. And in this case, we're going to look internally because I think that this is more an internally driven scene and how that is focusing the big idea driving the story. I also want to remind you, if you're a writer out there who's listening to this right now, that there are no perfect words for this value shift. And no reader is ever going to analyze a scene at this level. Very unlikely. Being able to identify a value shift, in my opinion, helps me understand why this value shift occurs and helps me confirm if it is a scene that advances the plot and develops the character through change. Based on how the commandments challenged and impacted Beth on her move-in day, I think you could label a value shift as something like insecure to desperate to prove herself. I see this scene as dominantly internal, which makes sense because there is a heavy worldview arc, if not the main worldview arc, driving this plot making this really deeply rooted coming of age story that is going to have a lot of external factors, of course, that challenge the internal arc. But it's pushing characters to face their own insecurities and take on the societal corruptions that are going on at Chandler. Some other value shifts I think could that could work for the scene could be something like invisible to momentarily noticed or longing for acceptance to actively seeking acceptance. All this to say, see, there is no perfect value shift words here. I've come up with a few options. The whole point of it is that that it helps me see from the editor's perspective or from the writer's perspective that there is something significant going on here that has created a change from the beginning of the scene to the end of the scene. This helps me confirm that the details that are preserved in the scene have significance and meaningful placement, not only structurally, but also for all these other really important elements and factors that impact the big idea of the story and the writing itself. Let's move into the next section, which is about the seven key questions you can use to help you tell if the first chapter that you've written is or read is a great first chapter. Structure in a scene indicates how a change occurs, but it's not the only element in a first chapter needed to hook a reader. When I look at first pages, I love to use the writer's guide to beginnings. There are tons of insights in Palomine's The Writer's Guide to Beginnings that can help you figure out if your beginning is strong or how to write a strong beginning. But particularly, I like to take these seven key questions and use them to help me analyze a first chapter. These key questions are, one, what kind of story is it? Two, what is the story really about? Three, who is telling the story? Four, which character should they care about most? Five, where and when does the story take place? Six, how should they, meaning the reader, feel about what's happening? And seven, why should the reader care what happens next? If you're familiar with Paula's book, wonderful. And if you're not, don't worry. I'm going to do the same thing that I did for the commandments. Explain briefly the significance of each of these questions and what to look for, and then use the first chapter in the Chandler Legacies as an example. The first question, the focus is genre. The question again is, what kind of story is this? The beginnings of a manuscript should read like its genre. Paula indicates in her book that the first word should, and this is a quote, reinforce the genre identity set by the title, or you'll lose the reader and the sale. And that's the end of the quote. 
When a title indicates one genre and the pages counter this expectation, you risk confusing and losing your readers. If the genre isn't clear from the first pages, a literary agent and author will have difficulty selling it. Remembering that writing, John Cusick went over this in the interview, that writers who are going to the traditional publishing realm need to really see writing as a blend of passion and business. If the genre isn't clear, in addition to the literary agent and author having difficulty selling it, the publisher probably won't know how to market it and booksellers won't know where to shelve it. Because of this, they're going to have a hard time identifying who the target reader is, which means that it's less likely that target readers will find it if they exist. The Chandler Legacies is a YA novel that John Cusick mentioned in Publishers Weekly has a lot of sharp social commentary that makes it riveting and it's a portrait portrayal of prep school life. You can clearly see from the first pages that we are dealing with a teenager who's going through something. And there's a lot of that teenager angst and what she's concerned about. I do encourage you to go listen to John Kuzik's interview, which again, this is the bonus episode to John Kuzik's interview, where he elaborates on why YA stories are more than just a teenager. There's a lot more to the restrictions of a YA story and the expectations that that sets. So go listen to John Kuzik's interview for that. But that's what we're looking at here. And that is clear from the first page of this book. The second question focuses on plot. And the question is, what is the story really about? Paula shares in her book that she can't sell a story that she can't explain in 50 words or less. This means that from the very beginning, the story needs to clearly define the protagonist, the story goal, and the conflicts they're up against. A story needs to indicate the big hook that makes the story worth a reader's time. And I will tell you, it is challenging sometimes to get stories into 50 words, especially a brilliant one like this, where there's so many details that I didn't want to leave out. But I did manage to get it in 50 words. And I used a lot of help from research on how John Kuzik wrote up the Chandler Legacies and Publishers Weekly and a couple more research things like with the impact cover blurbs and stuff like that. Here is in 50 words, my pitch for the Chandler Legacies. It is a YA novel about five students with disparate identities accepted into the circle a coveted writing group at their elite Connecticut boarding school. When their professor instructs them to write their truths, each must face their insecurities, as well as the school's toxic legacy of bullying, homophobia, racism, and sexual assault. There you go, 50 words. For a little elaboration on the plot, the first chapter thrives with teenage angst, showing readers that this is a story from a young adult's life, but also that the story will be so much more than the life about a teenager. Still, Beth's priorities are reflective of a teenager likely to go through a coming-of-age story, like how Beth hints at drama covered by secrets, her desire to be liked by other kids and get an elite and exclusive group called The Circle. She has a lot of anxiety that she's dealing with and her insecurities. She wishes that she was in a closet of queer, but doesn't quite feel safe enough to come out. So there are a lot of details that we're getting hints at, what the story is going to build on, but we don't necessarily go into the nitty gritty of each. We get taste of what's about to come and can see why we should connect to Beth. We also anticipate that this story will shed light on the power of writing and using our voices and how doing each can help us make sense of a complicated and imperfect world and how we're going to exist within that. So this is all plot, right? To specifically look at the plot and how it is advancing and developing, you go back to the commandments, you go look at the actual details of what's happening in the plot. And I think that's really what reinforces plot. But in my explanation here, I'm going over at how that plot movement is digging into the, the big idea of the story itself, as well as the scene level and the actual events that are moving the story forward. The third question is POV related. Who is telling the story? The first chapter should clearly establish a point of view or POV character, and the POV character is often the protagonist, and readers need to know right away who is telling the story and the limitations of that point of view. There are three main types of point of view, first person, third person limited, and third person omniscient. 
There are also other options like second person, but these are less common and books may include multiple point of views. In this case, the point of view will shift either in scenes or in chapters, but no book should contain head hopping. You might see shifts in point of view within an omniscient narrator, but remember the omniscient narrator is not actually the character. They're having their own authorial voice that gives you freedom to go from different point of views within a scene. Otherwise, don't do that. Regardless of what point of view you choose, a strong voice is necessary for great books, and it's not uncommon for an agent or editor to pass on a story that lacks a defining voice or embrace one that is exceptional. The Chandler Legacies is written in third-person limited and told through alternating third-person viewpoints. This keeps the reader close to the protagonist who opens the story bad, as well as the other students accepted into the circle. Literary agent John Kuzik further reported on the POV in Publishers Weekly when he wrote, quote, not all the characters are fully developed. Still, Nazemian's sharp social commentary makes this a riveting portrait of prep school life. End quote. This social commentary is undeniable from the first chapter. It's told through Beth's point of view and the seeds about the other characters and likely the other POV characters that we're going to get to know are planted as Beth interacts with students or focuses her attention on some that seem to have played a significant role in her previous year. Some of these include Spence, this character named Freddie mentioned. She reflects a lot on Sarah and all of these create intriguing setups for what's to come. The fourth question is on character. The question is which character should we care about the most? No story works with a memorable character and the reason readers keep reading a story is because they want to see if the protagonist makes it and because of this they're going to follow the protagonist until the end of the story readers should see how the protagonist is sympathetic placed in a situation that demands the reader's attention and is forced to make tough decisions the chandler legacies opens with beth kramer who is one of the main protagonists of the story there are shifting points of view in the story but beth is the first that we are introduced to and from this first chapter we understand her as sympathetic for one beth represents every person who has ever fell out of place but determined to make a name for themselves. To gain acceptance through hard work and proving that she is special, smart, and belongs is something that almost every person, if not every person, has experienced in their own way at one point or another. On the second page, Beth shares how she's a townie, and later in the chapter, she emphasizes how townies who attend Chandler are overlooked and judged. She is not as wealthy or as attractive in her mind as a lot of the other students. And this sets her as a disadvantage or a reason to be overlooked. She feels that desperate tug to prove herself and prove her value and her worth. It also reinforces why she has a driving want for the story, which is, quote, a second chance at convincing them and convincing herself that she belongs here, end quote. Beth demands a reader's attention because we can see how unsettled and insecure she is in her surroundings. For instance, she can't believe when Spence knows her name and feels slightly relieved when Henny doesn't. Plus, Beth struggles with anxiety to the point of pulling her hair out, but she fights for control and sets her mind on grabbing Professor Douglas's attention and being recruited for the this year. Everyone who is human longs and needs friends, especially in teenage years. And Beth at the beginning of this chapter has no friends or no friends that she sees as true companions. This is a driving factor of her story goal is to get into the circle because she needs to prove that she belongs and really find those friendships. Beth has to make a tough decision that comes down with stakes. In her first chapter, we actually see Beth's crisis decision revolving around her interaction with someone who she can't even believe knows her name. And that throws us all back into the sense of insecurity. Have we been addressed at some point by someone who we put up on a pedestal and can't imagine would even notice us? And what do we do in those interactions? There's always that fear of embarrassment or there's that potential gain. So it's a very relatable teenage decision, but it's going to, of course, then dig deeper into the aftermath of what happens for the scene, which you can refer back to the five commandments in order to understand that more.
The fifth question is setting-based, and the question is, where and when does the story take place? Paula encourages you to imagine the first pages as the establishing shot of the film, which helps readers understand the setting, the time, the place from the very beginning. It also sets the tone, which is important to your story genre. The Chandler Legacies is set at an elite boarding school in Connecticut in 1999, and the setting is absolutely vital to the dynamics of the main characters and how their life experiences challenge and change them. Because the teenagers in the circle are extremely dissimilar from one another, it's likely that their writing assignments and what is written and shared will reveal opposing perspectives or experiences that break down barriers while also showing similarities that connect one another. It speaks to the worldviews and how we can be trapped in our own worldviews until we're challenged with things that force us out of them, like writing about our truths. And the year 1999 is important as well because it's emphasized in the back cover that there's this toxicity of bullying, homophobia, racism, and sexual assault at Chandler Academy. And this will be something that the characters need to face. And it's going to be something that's difficult to face regardless of the year, but 1999 would play a significant difference in what those conflicts would look like versus something of any other year. Readers get a taste of this toxic environment from Beth's point of view in the first scene through recollection that pulls us close to her. Like when she shares how in the previous year, Sarah Brunson complained about Beth's hair loss to the point of calling a meeting with her dorm parent. And when Brunson suggested Beth wear a hairnet, the only grown up in the room agreed. And that's what Beth did for the rest of the year. Outside of the backstory, readers see firsthand that some of the judgment Beth receives, like when a girl named Jane is surprised that Beth is living on campus, classifying her as the townie. And there's also the shock to the point of paralyzation that Beth feels when seemingly confident girls like Spence address Beth by name. So it just gives us a sense of what the culture is at the school and the pressures that exist and where your privilege is and how that sets you at an advantage or a disadvantage in the school and how you go about facing that. Question number six is focusing on the core motion. So how should they, meaning the reader, feel about what's happening? Readers want to feel something when they read the first pages, and there's no exception to this in the first pages of the Chandler Legacies. Ask yourself, what is the emotion that you feel as the reader when you read these first pages, and how do those first pages successfully create that emotion? The emotion that I feel when I read the first pages of the Chandler Legacies is that sense of longing through Beth. I really want Beth to make it. She's so sympathetic. She has these odds stacked against her. She's had tension that she's endured. We don't really know the full story of that and we worry about her and we can really tap into those moments or at least I really can tap into those moments as a reader when I was embarrassed or worried or felt a lot of pressure or had a lot of anxiety. I can see that all through what Beth is facing and what she's challenged within these scenes. I'm rooting for Beth as she prepares to submit her essay for consideration. I can see that she wants to prove herself and there's this sense of pride. There's this sense of I may be insecure, but at the same time, reminding yourself that you have value and you have worth and you have something to do and show and can stand up for yourself. And that's where Beth is at the end of this chapter. I'm hopeful that if there's an adequate mentor, if there's friendships that can be healthy and good for Beth, that she is going to learn something about herself and face things that are going to make her a stronger person, then she is on this first page. I can see so much potential for the growth and I'm eager to see her achieve that growth. It makes me sad that she's not valuing herself. And I see that there's so much potential in her and so much to value. The seventh question is about stakes. And the question is, why should they, again, the reader being they, care what happens next? This question deals with three factors and here's what each entails. One, the action happens at this, as the story opens. The first pages and first chapters shouldn't be filled with backstory or obsessive telling. Something interesting needs to happen, and that something interesting should force the character to make a crisis decision. Two, the premise of the story. The premise is the starting point of the story, and it grounds the big idea for what's to come. The premise also highlights what's compelling and where the story will go. 
And three, the big idea of the story. And this is a story's hook and what grabs the reader. The bigger the idea, the better your chance at selling your story and the more likely you'll be able to write a novel length story about it. If you want readers to care about what happens next, look at your story opening. Is something happening in this first scene, in that first scene and chapter that forces a protagonist to make a crisis decision? How does this action and decision relate to the premise of the story and the big idea of what makes your story stand out? The Chandler Legacies opens with one, the action. There is backstory in the first chapter, yes, but this is woven within action of Beth moving into her dorm room sophomore year at Chandler Academy. And we walk through many of the uncomfortable, embarrassing experiences that Beth has to face throughout this day. And we can see all of this driving to Beth's desire to write this essay and submit it to Professor Douglas, which is going to hint at question number two, point number two, the premise of the story, and point number three, the big idea of the story. Point number two, the premise of the story. The premise of the story deals with a group of teenagers at an elite boarding school given a chance to gain confidence, appreciation, and forgiveness of themselves and others and friendships and relationships through individual and shared experiences of writing. The first chapter shows us how out of place Beth feels and also why getting into the circle could change everything for Beth. Point number three, the big idea of the story is based on a teenager's learning how to find their voices and themselves in the toxic environment of this New England boarding school set in 1999. Although readers don't get all the answers, every interaction that Beth has with the student in the action of the scene and in the backstory hints at secrets and insecurities that are caked behind facades with the exception of Beth, since we're pulled closely into her POV, although I'm sure we're not given all of the POV in those first pages. There's a lot to be learned and how the teenagers learn to shift from surviving to thriving or hopefully not suffering defeat will depend on their admittance into the coveted writing group at Chandler, the circle. And it also makes us as readers question, will Beth be able to prove herself to her peers and more importantly, herself? Whether or not you're writing a contemporary realistic YA story like the Chandler Legacies or any other genre, first chapters will make or break a book. They are staples in a writer's ability to hook their readers and they make a sale. First chapters also establish the expectations for a story. And if a first chapter is well-written, this is the quality of writing and storytelling that should continue throughout the entire book. Because we're now learning tools to help you write a great first chapter, this can help you learn how to become a better writer. Using these tools and methodologies like the Five Commandments and Paul Monet's first chapter questions are, are strategies and tools that you can use to help measure up not just your first chapter, but all of your writing. And hopefully this will continue to help you write a story that can help your reader be them a literary agent, editor, or your general target reader. Acting the Semian's writing is a fantastic example of an engaging first chapter that hooks the readers from page one. If you'd like to read Abby's work, you can find a link to his book in the show notes. That's all I have for today's bonus episode. I hope that these resources give you what you need to polish the first chapter of your book. I'll provide the resources for Paula's book and copy of my analysis in the show notes, although I am working on a website now, so there might be a little delay in that, but it will be there depending on when you're listening to this episode. I also hope that this has inspired you to read The Chandler Legacies. I haven't finished reading the book yet, but I am loving it so far, and I know I will be recommending it to my friends and family who love YA books. It's such beautiful writing and a beautiful story, and it models why writing is so powerful and can help us express ourselves in our worlds and help us learn things that sometimes make it difficult to process and communicate out loud. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the previous episodes that I've shared on LitMatch and you're an Apple user, I genuinely would appreciate if you take a minute to write a review and rate this podcast. This helps me reach more writers like you who are trying to find a literary agent 
and who want to mature their writing craft and ability to hook readers from the very beginning of their manuscripts. Thank you for that time and your generosity and taking the time to listen today. If you have any questions or comments and would like to contact me personally, send me an email at abigailkperry at gmail.com. I will do my absolute best to answer you. I hope you join me next week for more insightful and informative conversations. As always, I can't wait to hear when you've signed with the best literary agent and business partner for your writing career. I also can't wait to celebrate your book when it comes out. 